response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And he went on to define uh, realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, of nibbana, being complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind and the heart of an arhant. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was a sense uh, that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly, truly believing that this was possible. In the many times that I've sat uh, with Saida Upandita and uh, when I practiced with my teacher Pawak Saida, both of these venerable teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways over and over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha also often speaks of freedom in this same way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to get some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim uh, of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think, what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so here you are making physical and mental effort in the service of awakening in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our life out of, outside of retreat, we come to know to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase, others decrease. And we begin to find that at least to to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourself, and what's harmful to others. When we begin to find that the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome states of heart, are more and more are experienced, more readily available, manifesting more and more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice, in the immediacy of here and now, this begins to grow, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. 
And this is uh, some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart, the mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be quite an inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within us, the feelings of, it can be done, I can do it. Over the years in my own practice, there have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teaching and the practice. When I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's been because I was afraid that I really wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've always found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Pao Aksayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. In a particular practice interview with him that I had, I went in and said, this is hard. It's too hard. <laughs> and Venerable Pak Saidao, looking at me with great kindness in his eyes and kind of light laughter coming out of him, said, he very simply said, no, it isn't. <laughs> and it's true. The suttas, the direct uh, teachings of the Buddha, are filled with this very approach to practice. This evening we'll 
specifically explore a few of the difficult, afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new uh, anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, Strong desire and attachments, confusions, pains. It's a long list. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we may have mindfully met and seen with an open heart, an open mind. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is, whatever's there, whatever's here, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that might have been tucked away, the so-called skeletons in the closet. When they appear, and I think it's quite important to remember the when they appear part, It's not about dredging up or digging up afflictive states of mind. And maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a a true happiness, a a true ease, without ever uh, being able or without ever letting out the skeletons. Uh, And that's fine for them. But actually, I have never, ever met anyone like that. I don't know if you have. Most of us need to discover these skeletons in order to find a, a true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and to look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that maybe we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable or maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that in fact we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly, maybe for a very long time. 
In relation to this, I'd <clears throat> like to offer you uh, Stephen Mitchell's version of the myth of Sisyphus. <clears throat> we tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It's become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools, the tools of concentration, mindfulness, metta, compassion, each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance, and patience, enabling us to see clearly and to be able to go home. This is really such an amazing process, learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being, learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached, to see just what is right here, right now, and begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. We notice, we note how it is in the present moment, the breath, the body, feelings, the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this moment. With concentration and mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, irritation, judgment, worry, disappointment, really have no more control over us. We begin to realize that the reactive habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of or fix it, or trying to ignore it, or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity, the, oh, it's really nothing sort of attitude. We begin to realize that none of these reactive habitual patterns serve us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or Seeing through, seeing through is opened. Things 
are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing. This is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without all of the old habit, the old habits of the past, maybe a long time ago, 20 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, without all these old habits continuing to have power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that says, rain saddens what is kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And Bhante Gunaratana had something to say about this in his book, uh, Mindfulness in Plain English. He said, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And so we sit quietly and watch ourselves. And all kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be accepted, clearly seen, and investigated. And as you know, this takes time. We really can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. The rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance or fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And it can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourself in through this process of opening to and relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our 
addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look now at what might be the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world Everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinite finitude of changing relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, judgment, doubt, strong desire, attachment, etc. And yet so often we believe that the opposite of this is the truth of things, the reality of things. Taking our experience and things as though to be quite solidly and singularly in place and here to stay, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future and solidify both in our mind. And yet life just simply keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, during the midsummer and through early fall, we have what we call our monsoon season. In the, and in the big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, even double rainbows quite often. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life 
including our self, all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything that we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. And the other side of the coin, of the same coin, of course, being pushing away, avoiding, resisting. Our practice is about present moment awareness. Really, truly being in the present. This present moment, this present moment, this one and this one. Just as it is. Right now and right now and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for the moment to be different that causes suffering. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment. And on and on and on it goes, all of which we can see if we take a close look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. We have a saying in English that says, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. 
But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering, not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So, going on now, exploring a few of the specific hues of the uh, rainbow of emotional states and beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, such as feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to. Or maybe feeling like, I can't be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or this strong emotional state or pain in the body or at times maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life. Maybe sometimes feeling frozen or caught. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we believe it, it's his fault. It's because of her, it's because of them, etc. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. And maybe also the other side of the coin, hope. As I offered uh, in this morning's reflection, so some of you, a few of you have heard this already, uh, I'd again like to offer you another approach to perfection other than what your conditioned and maybe idealized concept of perfection might be. And this is from the Taoist uh, Master Chang Tzu. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in and identifying with the mind of judgment, doubt, blaming, criticism, 
inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think we're that we're often afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and it's not been so easy. Years ago, one of my uh, teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully reported the experience of fear, he said to me, fear is just fear. And when I first heard this, my inward response was, well, that's easy for you to say. Obviously, uh, uh, some taste of resistance and irritation in this thought. I didn't say it out loud. (laughs) But eventually I began to see and to know that fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness and concentration, based in kindness towards ourselves. We begin to be able to see and meet and receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye, and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it, and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. As we get strong, as our heart gets stronger and our concentration and mindfulness muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know, and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be a moment of very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine. And it's not that the energy of fear then will never appear again. We learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, so to say, to lose our fear of fear and begin to see it clearly, to see through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. The poet Wendell Berry speaks of this in his 
a beautiful way. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes, comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how most of us have been conditioned. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states, actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities, keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice, as I've already mentioned, about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught, when we're swept away in them. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection based in kindness with a very focused and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based practice, this intimacy is in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. In some of the earlier stages of samadhi or samatha, concentration practice, these same principles apply, though investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in vipassana practice. So taking a bit of a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, a very powerful energy. And from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. Once I knew someone who's Energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached, very identified with her anger. In fact, spoke about really liking her anger. 
She said that she felt strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she wasn't a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they'd move away. She was a very lonely person, and yet so identified with herself as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of one's awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels quite restless, driven, nothing satisfying. Sleep can be quite difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms quite large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's been drawn that's not to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing and simple and difficult to see is that anger, rage, hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out, a specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, we could say, and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing, As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or doubt or greed or clinging or expectation or disappointment, it's very helpful to just try to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. 
So continuing with anger as the example, these thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body, feeling the emotion directly in itself, without the story. So what are you feeling? Maybe heat or tightness or pressure, heaviness, contraction, maybe vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? Notice the mind. Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in the body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk a bit faster than you usually do. Bringing your attention directly into the body with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside. The expanse of the fields, the trees, and conjunction with the wide-open spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, rabbits, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body, in the breath, if you're practicing concentration. In those moments of a connected present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease and sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment, moment attention is amazing. Beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. And again, some words from Nisargadatta Maharaj, who often taught his students in dialogue with them. And his student asks, what is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's 
present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed, concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, greed, attachment, sadness. So now I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart, our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A very uh, blatant and current example of this, with greed being the root of our current worldwide economic crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need to get, how we think things need to be, in order for us to be contented, in order for us to be really at ease in our life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't, and that, in fact, it can't. And there are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. All desire is not a bad thing. For instance, It's in part um, what got you here on retreat. In light of uh, what we've been exploring, I'd like to share uh, a prayer, a personal practice, I was told, of Mother Teresa's. And I'll read it just as, uh, as it was given to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular. 
from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. A day or two after uh, I received this uh, prayer, this practice in the mail, a friend called and I read it to him over the phone and his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) And we do. We have a lot to do. But every time I read that, I feel an inspiration. I think it's a, a wonderful practice from a person who some people have dubbed a saint, an honest saint. Many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep a certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to or get something back. Or we can spend lots of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing maybe right here even in retreat, maybe the particular wonderful sitting you had yesterday, or maybe the particular wonderful sitting you had a year ago on your last retreat. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that's the problem. I could think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a simple, quite mundane personal example. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful, beautiful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, which was a particular flower. I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell, very present, aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else, but I wanted to just stay there and continue experiencing this sweet smell. So with that next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and a degree of burning irritation in the mind. I got up and walked away to do what needed to be done next, but there was still a a clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was gone, completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it. I was wanting it back, planning when I could get back to the garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago 
was a moment of pleasantness, was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly. There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about being taken shopping in some big city to an area where there are lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and systems. His friend took him there because he knew that the Dalai Lama was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. The Dalai Dalai Lama said that um, as he was looking into the shop windows, uh, at first there was a very open curiosity and interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything. He wanted all of it. Even though he said that he, he said, I didn't know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice. To see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility as Myoshin mentioned on Monday evening. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who, had been, who has been a profound and powerful teacher in her own right, says this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. As we begin to see and to know how greed and clinging, begin to see and know greed and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people, there's often some confusion, a delusion that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and to know it clearly. What is ease? happiness, really. It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. And even more important, a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of release from the stress of clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. 
The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And on through all of the six sense doors in this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, I found a recipe. At risk of uh, giving you a recipe that you already have and occasionally cook up, I'd like to share this recipe with you. And it's called A Recipe for unhappy, Unhappiness. The ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining. A quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable. One bunch of actual reality. One pint of idealized worldview. Two teaspoons of perfection. Four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is and to inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear concentration, mindfulness, and investigation grounded in kindness. All of this meeting the experience of the moment and seeing it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see through them so clearly we see their nature just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One, uh, one way, uh, and maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is just a a very small passage from the Mahayana Vimalakirtri Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps of mud banks. 
just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourself or pretend to anyone else that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, he quite often used very descriptive language. These cankers transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So just taking a couple of moments and looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting strong desire, without self, the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clearly discriminating awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self, is digested into the great, strong heart of metta, compassion, and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of, to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and in our mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just 
as it is. We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. I'd like to close the talk with a, a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. And some of you may know uh, Hokusai was a Japanese painter whose most famous painting is this one great big wave. It's a poem by Roger Keyes. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit together for just a moment. 